The reading this morning is from Acts, um, chapter 16, verses five, uh, 6 to 15, and it's page 1111 in the Church Bibles. Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to do so. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen this vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Theatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Thank you, Mary, for that. Uh, Sometimes it's a bit difficult to get to grips with these different readings with all the names. Sometimes I... I wonder how it would be if uh, we were a sort of first century church having to come to grips with names like Kensington and Shepherd's Bush and London. But of course, they all represent people and places, don't they? And we're going to just explore that a little bit as we begin on this new series, this journey, which we're calling a a new thing. So let's pray as we begin to think uh, together, shall we? Father, thank you again for your presence with us. Thank you for the words of the songs that we've been singing that remind us that nothing is impossible for you, that remind us that you are faithful, faithful to your promises, that remind us that we are called into your presence as your people. As we look at your word now, Lord, please would you remove the scales from our eyes? Would you unblock our ears? Would you help us to see afresh what you want to do? We want to be your people and we want to be in tune with your spirit in this new season as you turn us outwards and invite us into new things. Lord, we want to be where you are. So would you guide us, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, I wonder how you handle changes in plans. You know, you're somebody who, when there's a sudden change in plan, you relax into it and you go with the flow, or are you somebody who gets all sort of stressed? Don't laugh at me, Pippa. Um, we regularly have that in our family, actually, because I'm pretty cool about things like that. And Uta gets quite sort of uptight when things change. I know more than one family in the church who were uh, <clears throat> at the risk of having all their holiday plans completely thrown by last-minute potential changes of plans. Fortunately, you did get on your cruise. But sometimes we have even the best-laid plans, the things that we have looked um, to put in place with the help of the Lord. We've prayed them through. As Christians, we've wanted to follow what God is doing. And then, and then suddenly it feels like we come up against a wall. Have you ever known that? And the, and the problem is that um, even those of us who are really flexible and relaxed about things changing and circumstances changing, um, after a while, we begin to get discouraged when no alternatives show up. And we're, we're, we're almost, we've got the impression we're caught in a place and we, we can't seem to find a way out. Wherever we turn, things just don't seem to open up. Well, we don't know how the Apostle Paul was on the flexibility scale. My hunch is that he probably started out quite rigid, you know. He was this um, uh, good Pharisee with his legal sort of mind. And yet, as he followed the Lord and he went on the journey of his mission um, to serve, and to reach out with the love of Christ, he, he learned to deal with different situations. He learned to discern God's way. Um, we've been reading through the book of Acts and we've seen how the early church had to constantly come up um, with uh, new understandings as they found themselves confronted with, with situations they hadn't planned. And um, this morning as we look at the passage before us in, in the book of Acts, we are in exactly one of those situations. Because Paul has had really well laid plans and suddenly he's finding himself up against a wall. Now understand, it had started out really, really well. Paul had done his first missionary journey and now he's laying the plans, he's laid the plans for a second missionary journey. The strategic aspect of the plans are really clear. He wants to follow the same sort of line and logic as the first journey. In other words, he wants to go round looking at the big urban centers, preaching to the Jews and then reaching out beyond and creating communities. And his idea is that he's going to go back and visit the same churches that he saw in his first journey, strengthening them, encouraging them to keep going with the Lord before then going a little bit further in the same area of Cilicia and Galatia, two Roman provinces. And the idea is to dig deeper and to go round, and as he goes round, to encourage and to plant. And of course he'll do it with the same strategy. Now the order has changed. Because since the end of the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas, his co-worker, have argued over the makeup of their missionary team. And so Paul is now with a new worker, Silas. And when they left for their first missionary journey, they went first of all to Crete. Why? Well, Crete was the place Barnabas came from. Now that Paul's not with Barnabas but with Silas, they don't need to start by going to Crete, they're going to do it the other way around and they're going to start by going through the region, the region of Cilicia. Why? That's in modern day Turkey because the capital of that province was a city called Tarsus. 
which was, of course, Saul's, Paul's home city. So we're going through, and as they go through the different areas, they begin then to visit some of the churches that they've planted in the first missionary journey, and it's going really well, and they arrive at a place called Derby. And there they decide strategically that they need to grow their team. And so they, they have somebody, a young boy called, or a young man called Timothy, who joins them and part of their, their team. Why Timothy? Well, the strategic thinking there, because Timothy has a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. Perfect for reaching out first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, you see? And so while they're in Derby, poor Timothy goes through a bit of initiation period, initiation process, a training process where he gets circumcised. Ooh in order to be able to reach out to the Jews who are in that area. And everything is set, you understand? that Everything, all the plans are laid, the dream team is there, they're going to now go around that area, planting new churches, reaching out to Jews and Gentiles. Everything is there. And then, it's like they hit a wall. They plan to go south, into an area that was called Asia. Obvious, obvious place to go into. Why? Because there were big urban centers. Colossae, Ephesus, that great port city with its international influence. All the churches that we read of in the book of Revelation are in that area. It's obvious that it's a strategic center, but the passage says the spirit of Jesus would not let them go. The door closes. So Paul carries on a bit west and he's thinking to himself, thinking on his feet literally, and he's saying, okay, we can't go south, we'll go north. We'll go into another province. It's a province called Bithynia. And let's go to some of the strategic centers there. And the passage says a second time, the spirit of Jesus says no. And the door closes. Now, we don't actually know how that happened. Perhaps... They were struck with illness. Perhaps there was a change in the political climate. Perhaps it was a prophetic word or opposition. The text says that Jesus said they shouldn't go, but perhaps that's reading it from the benefit of hindsight. But perhaps at the time they thought that this was spiritual attack. Whatever it was, their well-laid plans came to nothing and they were up against a wall. And I like to see Paul and his companions here pretty discouraged. They've launched out, they've felt that this is a new day, and now suddenly they've stopped. And the text makes it clear that they continue rather aimlessly going sort of west, trying to think what, what the logic is. What, they should be planting churches, they're doing nothing. Until they hit the end, they, they, they go to a, a port I mean, you can't go further than the port, it's the sea. So they stop. This place is called Troas. It's the end. They can't go left, they can't go right, they stop. Do you know that feeling? When you've tried one thing and it hasn't worked and you've tried another and it hasn't worked and wherever you turn, nothing seems to work and you end up stopping. And you're tired. But here's the thing, Troas, that sort of back end port, which for Paul represented a dead end, 
for God was the start of a new direction. You see, it wasn't because of failure that Paul had ended there, it was because of promise. And the place that felt for Paul like he was up against the wall was actually a door that was about to open. You see, Paul had a certain perspective. Left on his own, Paul would have carried on through the province of Asia, planting churches, and then he would have gone home. Maybe he'd have stopped off at Tarsus with his parents, had a cup of tea. But you see, while Paul is thinking of one or two provinces, God is thinking the whole of the West. God is thinking Europe. He's thinking the world. And Paul needs to be brought up sharp in order for something of God's vision for this world to be revealed to him. And so it does begin with a vision. It begins with a vision of a man. Paul is there. Perhaps he's got a bit sort of, a, of, a, of an uncomfortable sleep. He's, he, he's not got great sleep patterns. He's worried. And suddenly in the middle of his sleep, the text tells us he sees a vision of a man from Macedonia. And the man says this, he says, come help us, God is doing a new thing. And it's over here. It's not where you thought, it's somewhere else. Now understand, the man of Macedonia, Macedonia was another Roman province. But to get there you had to sail you had to get in a boat, you had to go from Troas that was not the dead end, it was the open, it was a port. And in order to do that, you had to get in a boat and you had to go across the Aegean Sea to hit Macedonia and enter into Europe. The text says this, verse 10, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I love that rapidity. I mean, maybe Paul was saying, at last. But here's the thing I want you to notice. It's not that. It's one two-letter word in this passage, we. Up until this point in the book of Acts, it's always been they. Something happens in Troas, and I'll tell you what it is. God gives Paul another worker. And the worker is called Luke. He's the author of Acts. And in all likelihood, he came from Philippi. He was a Gentile. And when he meets Paul in Troas, and Paul has the vision to go out, Paul decides we need strategic thinking. Just like we needed Timothy before to reach the Jews and the Gentiles, now we need somebody who can go with us and reach those people. Let's take Luke. And from now on, whenever it's a question of Philippi and Macedonia, the text says we. They're in it together. The vision, you see, that God gives generates direction. And the new direction that God gives very often generates people that, put, that God places alongside us. Timothy in Derby, now Luke. And so 
Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy and Luke and probably others, they set sail for Macedonia. And they arrive in the big city of Philippi. And here too, there are going to be some new things. It's not just, you see, a new direction that God opens up for Paul at a time he doesn't expect it. It's a new church that is going to be born. And each time and in each stage of the story, Paul is going to be surprised and brought up short. God is always a step ahead of him. God is always a little bit bigger than he thought. God is outside the box. First of all, Paul is forced to, adapt, uh, to, to change his strategy. We've said that Paul's strategy was clear. Urban centers, first the synagogue and the Jews, and then anybody else who might want to add on. The problem is that um, Philippi was a big sort of political com commercial center on one of the main trade routes, cosmopolitan international city, a bit like London. But here's the problem, there was no synagogue. There was no synagogue. That means there weren't even 10 male Jews in the city. All there is is a place of prayer outside the city gate. So Paul has to change his strategy. He'll go to the place of prayer outside the city gate, and he does. And there he finds a group of women. And so he starts preaching to them. This is new for Paul. You understand, don't you? Up until now, Paul the Pharisee, converted Pharisee, he's been preaching to men in synagogues. Now he's preaching to women in a place of prayer. Something is changing. And in an astonishing way, one of these women, who would have been close to Judaism because the text tells us that she is a God-fearer, named Lydia, a successful businesswoman, involved in the dyeing industry with very, very expensive purple cloth. She responds to the gospel. You know, I imagine Paul there, he's preaching. He's preaching as he always did, but he just can't quite get his mind around the fact that this is a group of women and he's a male Jew. And yet one of them, Lydia, responds. It's like, it's like the harvest is ripe. It's like God is directing this thing. It's a bit like Peter and Cornelius, remember? Peter couldn't even get to the end of his sermon and already Cornelius was going, me, me, pick me, I want to respond. And Peter's saying, no, 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 let me finish my sermon. Well, that's not quite how it worked. And here Paul finds that Lydia is ready. And in a remarkable way, Lydia's conversion leads to the conversion of her whole household which in Roman culture probably meant 20, 30, 40 people, followed by urgent and open-hearted hospitality. Come. Come home to us. And Paul stays there. He's, he's clearly really out of his depth, you know. He's taken aback. This wasn't what he'd expected. But there is no denying the spiritual momentum Now actually the story carries on and it gets even more bizarre. We finished there with our reading, but you know probably what happens. Paul goes to what he's comfortable with. He starts teaching these new converts. 
Lydia's household, perhaps some other people who've believed, and he starts regularly teaching them as he had the habit of doing in order to structure this new little fledgling church. And something again starts going wrong. He finds himself again up against a wall. What is it? Well, they start, they start getting followed around by this weird slave girl who seems to be a little bit out of her mind. And she starts hurling abuse at them, attracting people's attention, looking at them, singling them out. And the text says this, verse 18, she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Listen, friends, here's another surprise. Paul's annoyance leads to an opportunity he hadn't imagined. Can you see, Paul is trying to do his thing and he's being hassled by somebody and he's going, go away, go away, but actually that's the woman that God's calling. And so a slave girl who in culture, in the Roman, Greco-Roman culture had, had no worth whatsoever, suddenly discovered life and is added to the church a really improbable convert. But of course, when God works, it provokes opposition. And what happens is that the uh, slave girl's owners, because that was how it was, she had no rights. She was owned like a piece of property. They were angry and they dragged Paul and Silas into the agora, into the marketplace, and they called the magistrates and they said, this is, this, these men have been, have been upseating our traditions. They're Jews. And they start working up the crowd. And the situation becomes extremely dangerous and volatile. And the result is that it goes downhill for Paul and for Silas. They're whipped. They're stripped. They're put in prison. And the jailer is given strict instructions to watch them carefully and so they are put in the inner cell. In other words, the one with no light. And their feet are placed in stocks, in chains. Once again, it seems like Paul and Silas have hit a brick wall. Do you see that? Bang! Now the great thing is that Paul is a quick learner. And he's understood that God is up to something. He's understood that every time he tries to do things on his own, it doesn't work, but God has a different plan. He understands that the great director is, is directing the action. And I love this. Paul and Silas, as a result, do not give up. And the text says, at midnight, in their cell, they are praying and singing praises to God and the other prisoners are listening to them. Isn't that amazing, at midnight? I mean, nobody sensible is awake at midnight. But who talked about sensible? They're seeking God. And so they pray and they praise, and they have literally a captive audience. And the text is amazing, because it says this about midnight, verse 25 in, the, in our passage, a little bit later on, 
Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. And then there's an amazing like, sort of upheaval, turning around of things. Because suddenly the jailer comes in and panics and he starts worrying for his own life. And Paul, the prisoner, starts reassuring him, it's okay, everyone's here. And so the jailer gets down on his knees in front of Paul and says to Paul, what must I do to be saved? Which actually probably means, how on earth do I get out of this mess? And he talks to Paul because Paul seems to be the one, the only one who's in control. We're talking about midnight, remember? Now, I think if I'd been in that situation, I'd have said to the jailer, go to bed. But Paul and Silas don't do that. They decide now is a moment. It's a moment to seize. It's a Kairos moment. We need to preach. And so they set up an evangelistic meeting. There in the prison, they start preaching. And the text tells us that the, the jailer and all his household come to believe. Isn't that extraordinary? There's a beautiful moment in the passage where, where the jailer then comes and washes Paul's wounds uh, and Paul washes the jailer through baptism. Isn't that beautiful? And the whole household are baptized there in the prison. And then the same thing happens as happened with Lydia. The jailer invites Paul into his home and they have the most extraordinary midnight feast full of joy at the time and place that Paul would least have expected it. I bet Paul hadn't quite imagined that the church would begin in that way. And if you follow the, the passage through to the end of the chapter, you'll see that once they're released, they go to Lydia's house. And Lydia and her household are there. And we can imagine that the jailer and his house and his family are there as well. And then we can imagine that the slave girl and perhaps some of her cronies that she's brought along are there too. An extraordinary, extraordinary mix. And then Paul and his companions, of course. I mean, what a church. Different nationalities. An Asian, a Greek, a Roman, and some Jews. Different social standings a wealthy merchant, a worthless slave, a middle-of-the-ladder civil servant, different sort of personal needs, an intellectual searching, a, a, a sort of psychological need, and then a moral searching for the jailer, the first European church, and all of it led by a non-European businesswoman. There's joy, there's power, there's family life, there's hospitality, there's welcome, there's generosity. Extraordinary. Totally unlikely. And yet, Paul loves it. He loves it because it has the hallmark of God on it. God always doing a new thing, bringing unlikely things to pass. Actually, you know, as the years go by, this is going to be the start of a new friendship for Paul because he becomes very, very attached to this small and growing church in Philippi. 
Every time he has the opportunity, he goes back to visit them. He goes twice, at least, on his next missionary journey. And every time he talks about them, he raises them up and sets them up as an example. Listen to what he says when he writes to the Corinthian church some seven years later. He says, like, he says this, 2 Corinthians 8. Now we want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to God's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God, also to us. This is a church that has learned extravagant generosity, and it started with one person inviting one person into their home. It's a beautiful kingdom picture. And so the church in Philippi, they give to Paul. When they hear later on that he's in prison, they send aid to him. They give to the churches around. They give to the church in Jerusalem. They equip the churches. They bless them. They send workers out. They become the key supporting church for Paul in his ministry. They are the ultimate resourcing church. And Paul loves them. Ten years later, ten years later, in AD 60, Paul sends them a thank you letter. It's a thank you letter for their gifts, but it's also a thank you letter for everything that God has done in them. And it is the letter to the Philippians that we have in our Bibles. This is how Paul begins. I thank my God every time I remember you, he says. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. A wonderful new thing. And all from such unexpected beginnings. A discouraged apostle and a ragbag of new converts. Amazing. So what about us today? We're embarking on a journey. We're going to be following, looking at the book of Philippians, looking at this letter that Paul writes to the church, how are they called to be if they're going to shine as lights in their universe? What sort of people does God want them to be if they're going to be a prophetic picture of his kingdom? We're going to be looking at that. But here's what I want to ask us this morning. In that, in that story, who, who do we relate to? Are you like the the businesswoman, Lydia, with her searching? Or the slave girl who needs and receives extraordinary healing and deliverance? Or the jailer in his workplace, because that's what it was, who sees the power of God at work? Or perhaps Paul, who longs to be used in new ways? 
The thing is that all of them were important to the church. All of them had their place. All of them were called into something new. All of them were changed. All of them stepped into something they hadn't imagined. In every case, God had something bigger for them than what they had expected. And I guess that's the call for us at St. Barnabas, isn't it? We're not so different from Philippi, an international center, people all around, cosmopolitan, what a mix. And yet the starting point for something new and what God wants to do with you and me and us is bigger than we think. And it just might be that we are faced with the impression that we're up against a wall. When we look at the economy, we hear the news, it's easy to have that impression, isn't it? Wow, what a mess. Sometimes when we think of our professional lives, sometimes we're more focused on the things that don't work than the things that do. Sometimes we don't understand where God's taking us. Maybe as individuals, maybe you, in your, in your walk with the Lord, you feel that you're up against a wall. Listen, here's the great thing. It's not a wall. It's a door that the Lord wants to open in his time. But for that, you need vision. What is your vision? What is the Lord giving you? What is he setting in your heart? Where is it that the Lord wants to call you? Where is that person who's saying, come over here, come over here, help me? God wants to do a new thing. What does that mean for us as a church? Well, we'll discover that over the next few months, weeks, years. But let me just leave three things um, with us as we, as we end. And they come from three verses in our, in our passage and then in that extended, in the whole chapter, in fact. And the first thing is this, very simple. It's that lovely verse, where, verse 15, where Lydia is um, converted, baptized, and then she says this. Um, she says, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Here's the first thing. Why not invite someone to your house? Hospitality. Why not invite a church member to come and eat with you? Or let yourself be invited? Step out a bit. It just might be an open door. Because this church was built on hospitality. Here's my second verse. It comes from the middle of the story. Verse 25, Paul and Silas in prison when Paul and Silas around midnight were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake, so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaking and the, the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. First thing's hospitality. Second thing's prayer. See, when we're up against it, we tend to get frustrated and do everything other than pray. But actually, Paul and Silas are learning and they, at midnight, are praying and praising. And it is that that loosens the foundations, shakes things and chains fall off. So if you're feeling up against it, why don't you pray and praise? 
That's what we want to do next Saturday. We have a whole day where as a church we want to pray and praise. We want to walk around the parish. We want to ask God to give us vision. We want to cry out to God for people who live here, asking that he would bless them, asking that he would open up new ways. Because that's where it begins. They pray and they praise and then the foundations are shaken. And then the third thing comes from the end of that chapter. When they come out of prison and they gathered in Lydia's home and the verse says this, after Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Here's my final thing. Hospitality prayer. Final thing is, is fellowship. Friends, we need to meet together if we're to step into what God wants. We need to be with others. Are you part of a hub, a small group in our church? Can I encourage you, if you're not, to join one? We're we're going to encourage all the hubs to be following this series and looking through Philippians. And actually, for those who are in hubs already, there there are some booklets at the back where we have worked out questions for discussions for every session. And the aim is that we would dig deeper together trying to work out what God is saying for us as a church and for us individually, praying for each other. We need each other. The churches, all the early churches met in people's homes and they learned to care for each other. Fellowship. So why don't you invite someone to your home? Why don't you pray a bit more? Why don't you join a small group? Why don't we seek God and believe that he has new things for us.